Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, June 25th, and this is The Financial Show. We're kicking off a very special theme week. This week marks the immediate lead-up to The Motley Fool's 25th anniversary, which is Saturday, June 30th. So, we decided to celebrate by doing a theme week around the concept of 25 years. Because Motley's in the name, everyone's interpreting that a little bit differently. Some episodes may be talking about how things were in their covered industry 25 years ago, here on Industry Focus. Others will probably be predicting how things might be 25 years into the future, with the caveat that, uh, well, no one can really predict the future, now can they? Matt and I are overachievers, so we decided to do both in under 25 minutes. So get your timers out, folks, because things are about to get interesting. <laughs> so, Matt, let's uh, let's start by by going to the past and some of the kind of major changes we've seen in the banking industry over the past 25 years. One of the big ones that we were talking about before we hopped on air today, of course, consolidation. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, one of the big things that's happened over the past 25 years is that the big banks have gotten bigger. Um, we now have what are known as the big four banks in the U.S., uh, Citigroup, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and J.P. Morgan Chase. And all of those have grown substantially through acquisitions, not just from the financial crisis, which saw a lot of consolidation, but beforehand. Actually, two of the or three of the four actually were acquired themselves, and the acquiring companies just decided to keep the names because they were more recognizable. Um, but just to kind of name a couple of cases, Wells Fargo uh, picked up Wachovia along the way, uh, J.P. Morgan, Bear Stearns, Washington Mutual. Uh, Bank of America picked up a bunch of U.S. Trust, Countrywide Financial, um, Merrill Lynch. And the be- you've heard before the financial crisis that a lot of these banks were becoming too big to fail. And it seems that they've actually become bigger as a result of the financial crisis. So that's been one big trend. It's a lot of consolidation in the industry over the past 25 years or so. Yeah, and we haven't just seen that in banking and in financials, to be clear. This uh, move towards scale is something we see across healthcare. We've seen it in, well, let's just say a lot of different industries uh, as uh, folks decide, to some extent at least, that bigger is better. Um, Of course, one of the big things that happened over the last 25 years is the extended use of the internet, (laughs) you know, Um, and and as a result, internet-based companies some of you have probably heard of Amazon, um, have, uh, have you know, really grown and uh, have really hit their stride. You know, a good example, of course, in the banking side is the online-only banks. Yeah, there's a few. Uh, we talk about both of you pretty often on this, on this show. Constantly, but, yeah. <laughs> right. But there were a couple that came actually before it that pretty much primarily offered just savings accounts and CDs. And they figured out really early on that because they had an online-only business model, that they were able to save the whole expense of having branches, employees, things like that, and offer better interest rates than everyone else is paying. Uh, personally, I had an I, uh, an ING savings account. I think I think it was when in uh, 1998 or 99. Um, so that was a big change over the past 25 years. Pretty much, a, if you wanted to open a savings account in 1993, you went to a banking branch. There was really no other option. Right, and 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 relatedly, let's let's dig into that a little bit more. I mean, there have been a number of other kind of technological innovations that have really changed the nature of financials. Let's say banking and banking activities. One of the big ones, of course, peer-to-peer payments. You know, it used to be you got your loan from maybe your parents, maybe from a VC, maybe from a bank. Not really so much from 
a dispersed group of people um, who are each kicking in 25 bucks or 50 bucks or however much to fund your idea. Yeah, if you wanted to borrow money in those days, say you needed uh, $20,000 to consolidate a bunch of credit card debt, you pretty much had to go to a bank unless you had wealthy friends or something to that nature. Um, it was really tough to find anywhere else to borrow money. And the, the lending process, because it was really only one option, was very lengthy, very inefficient, and very tough to get through in many cases. So peer-to-peer lending has not only forced some of the banks to kind of you know, get on board with this whole trend of making loans a little easier, including more customers, but it's really driven down prices and just increased a lot, increased competition. And it's just really been a good thing for consumers who need to borrow money. Um, Goldman Sachs, we talked about the Marcus platform. A lot of the the big banks like that are getting getting in on this and kind of seeing the value in that business model. Right. And relatedly, of course, to peer-to-peer lending is also peer-to-peer payments. Nowadays, you can you know, Venmo people money if you want to split a check, which um, certainly has saved me an inordinate amount of time and usually money because somehow whenever a check gets split five ways, I always seem to pay more than uh, the the numbers indicate that I should be. And I'm just like, somebody figured out how to uh, how to get a free meal here. Definitely. Um, <laughs> I need to use Venmo one of these days so I know more of what you're talking about. Oh yeah, but sorry. <laughs> having said that, no. But having said that, I use I use I use PayPal. I, I've used Zelle before, so that's pretty much the same thing. Right. Um, <laughs> but that's something. I mean, the process in 1993, 25 years ago, when the the fool was born, um, if you wanted to give your friend money, you pretty much had two choices. You could write them a check, then they would have to go to the bank, cash your or deposit your check to get the money, or you could go to the bank or ATM. ATMs existed in those days and get the money out and physically hand it to them. Either way, there was a trip to the bank involved. Yeah. So that's not, that's not a thing anymore. And people these days, I mean, people my age or older remember this, but a lot of people 30 and younger really don't remember having to go to a bank to get money. Well, I remember how often my parents, you know, I, we of course had to go to the bank because, you know, for whatever reason, and they always had those like really poor quality lollipops that were still really good. Do you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, I remember those well. Uh, I remember really liking the green apple one. Um, but anyway, that's its own long conversation. We can we can have a, a whole episode just on candy flavors and our favorites. Um, speaking about uh, technology a little bit more, too, I mean, th- a lot of this kind of ties into this idea of mobile banking, internet-based banking, um, that just really didn't exist. I mean, online banking portals didn't even start to appear really until the mid to late 90s. And well, let's just say they weren't terribly user friendly. Really, that seems to have taken off really in the last few years to really kind of get to like kind of a good, let's say, fairly frictionless experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm aging myself a little bit now, but the, the first time I became an adult was in the late 90s. And I had an account at what was known as Commerce Bank, which is now part of TD. Um, and I clearly remember logging onto the online portal pretty, I want to say early 2000s. You could pretty much check your balance. That was really the extent <laughs> right. of its functionality. Um, and there was no such thing as mobile deposit. You went to deposit, you went to go to the bank. Um, people my age probably remember how long the bank drive through lines got back in those days. You'd be sitting, I mean, the, the lollipops Michael was just talking about were the motivation my parents had for getting us to sit through the line with them. Um, you'll get a lollipop at the end of this. Don't worry. But it was, it's really just become boiled down to banking has become so much more convenient than it used to be. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because, of course, we think about fees in terms of money, but there's also the fee of time, right? And banks have really done a a, a good job in a lot of ways of kind of starting to lower those. I'm not saying that that's because you know the banks necessarily wanted to lower fees. It's just that that's where the market kind of drove them. Um, let's let's also talk a little bit about something that the fool has certainly been involved in, and certainly it's been a a symptom, you might say, of the broader uh, expansion of the internet, which is this idea of fee awareness, that people have become so much more aware of the fees they're paying, in part because there are sites like Fool.com and, of course, like a, a number of other sites online. You can probably imagine them, dear listeners, and you probably know of plenty that I don't even know about, that, that kind of compare these fees and help you understand, okay, here's how this works, here's what this is actually going to cost, um, and, and that's really helped bring a lot of transparency and further fee reductions as people have better understood what they're really paying for the services. Yeah, I'm surprised fees on things like checking accounts and things like that haven't really come down yet. Yeah. But in terms of investments, um, there seems to always be someone who's willing to do it cheaper. Uh, Vanguard is a big example of one of the pioneers in this space of real low-cost investment products. Um, they make almost nothing on some of their most popular ETFs. And just because of the volume, they're actually making a fair amount of money on them. Um, it's just the trend has been toward lower and lower fees, and people have become much more aware and wanted to be want to be aware of the fees they're paying before they enter a relationship, which really was not the case 25 years ago. Um, even like if you had a stockbroker, the commissions you paid were really in many cases, not very transparent. Right. Um, fees, banking fees were tougher to understand because certain reforms that have been enacted between then and now didn't exist. Um, so just more transparency exists because that's what customers are demanding these days. And uh, as we said, a general lower trend. Yeah, and and in the past twenty five years, you know, we should also note uh, you sort of teed this up very nicely, Matt, which is that regulations have changed. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's gosh, it's almost like we sort of prepared these shows beforehand a little bit, right? What a what a concept! Um, but uh, you know, in the in the uh, aftermath of the financial crisis, which obviously was a big event over the past twenty five years, um, one of the largest uh, recessions in the United States history, um, Dodd Frank regulations defined a systemically important financially. A financial institution or SIFI, um, and also prohibited certain types of investments by bank. And of course, as we discussed in an episode just a week or two ago, there have been some changes and some rollbacks to some of the Dodd Frank reforms. Yeah, the the uh, Dodd Frank reforms are really the biggest regulatory action in the past twenty five years, hands down. Um, the twenty five year period does not include the savings and loan crisis that happened just before. So. These are the biggest reforms and pretty much defined what too big to fail means and put steps in place to ensure that those institutions are not in a position where they would fail. So this is it was, it's generally a great step. Um, it seems that they might have gone a little too far, which is why some of the rollbacks to the regulations were were done a couple weeks ago, kind of relaxing what the uh, systemically important financial institution standard is and kind of letting some of the smaller banks take a little more risk. But the regulation has certainly come a long way. Um, there was no such thing as too big to fail back in 1993. No one, first of all, like I said, the four biggest banks were not nearly as big as they were right now. Um, and if one of them failed, it would just be inconceivable in 1993, where now, after the financial crisis, it's, hey, these 
are actually pretty vulnerable when they're not run correctly. Yeah, it's highly conceivable today because we've seen it happen. Uh, well, or seen it get let's let's say pretty close. You know, the financial the financial system very got very close to melting down. Um, so so that's just kind of again, you know, I was a uh, big lover of history in school, and um, I believe that history can tell us a lot about what our future is if we if we fail to heed its lessons. And so there's a lot of important stuff here for us to consider. So that's the past 25 years in about 10 minutes. Let's turn to the next 25 years with some predictions for how financials will change. Now, I want to be clear here. These are my personal predictions. Michael Douglas, uh, analyst here at The Motley Fool, uh, who enjoys covering financials and uh, noted bank enthusiast. Um, these are not necessarily Matt's predictions, although we talked about these beforehand, and I, I know where he's going to disagree with me a little bit. Um, and they certainly don't represent the company's uh, unified viewpoint, as if a company with the name Motley, and it could have necessarily one unified viewpoint on 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 things anyway. Um, but just a few things that I see, sort of looking forward, that I think will um, will really um, highlight what happens in financials over the next twenty five years, at least around the things that we're thinking about today. So let's start with blockchain. I believe that blockchain will be in widespread use for its dispersed ledger capabilities. I will further add, I do not think. Um, that Fannie and Freddie will be using uh, blockchain for mortgages because I think they're they're going to lag the rest of the market. But I'm betting that throughout the private sector, uh, blockchain will be used for contracts, and maybe even some non-agency conforming loans might ha- might be using blockchain um, for validation. Yeah, there's a ton of applications for blockchain technology, and we're already starting to see this kind of pick up a little bit, but. One important distinction I want to make, and we're going to get into this in a little more in detail in a minute. Blockchain does not mean Bitcoin. Right. Blockchain does not mean any other cryptocurrency. This is a form of technology. It's just like saying the internet does not mean Microsoft. Uh, it's you know one thing that led that kind of came out of internet technology. Right. Um, so uh, blockchain technology, I definitely agree with Michael on this one. Is going to grow by leaps and bounds. There's so many applications, not only in finance but in you know, fields like healthcare, for example, there's a ton of applications with blockchain in terms of record keeping and things like that. So I definitely agree with you on that one. And uh, here's the one that I, I don't think it's going to be too controversial between you you and me, Matt, but it might be for some of our listeners. I do not believe that any of the current major cryptocurrencies will be in widespread use for conducting business transactions. There, I said it. Um, they are too resource intensive and they're just too slow and they can't handle the volume. Now, that's not to say that they won't be used as validation because again, I think blockchain will be, um, but I don't think we're going to be regularly paying the pizza delivery guy with Bitcoin. Now, I do believe that new cryptocurrencies will emerge and may in fact and probably will better solve the speed and cost difficulties that would plague today's cryptos at scale. But I do not believe that any of our current, you know, you might think of them as first or second generation cryptos will be in widespread uh, um, uh, common use across society. So, but just to kind of add a little more color to that, when when Michael says the the major cryptocurrencies, I believe you're referring to what, like the biggest dozen or two dozen yeah, exactly. that exist right now? Yeah. Okay, um, there are 1,900 cryptocurrencies <laughs> right. and counting right now, and more, and more coming online every day. Um, so it's possible that the ones that will eventually have a big impact have already been invented yet. There's already third-generation cryptocurrencies being invented, but it's way too early to tell 
who knows which one of the 1900 could eventually become what everyone thinks Bitcoin is going to become. There's no way of knowing right now. Will cryptocurrency still be a thing in the future? Absolutely. They could definitely one day, probably not in the next 25 years, completely replace our currency system as we know it. Will it be Bitcoin itself that does it? Probably not. And that's kind of the point there. Um, it is interesting to note, though, that a lot of the newer, a lot of those 1900 cryptocurrencies um, kind of run on, kind of utilize the Bitcoin and Ethereum and the other blockchains in their technology. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic. But will Bitcoin itself be as big as everyone thinks it's going to be in 25 years? I'm predicting no. Yeah. Um now, here, here's one actually that we dis might disagree on a little bit. Um, I believe that 99% of U.S. bank business will be online in 25 years. So, you know, just to give you some context here, according to a Bank of America study, in 2016, 62% of Americans reported that they primarily banked online. I believe that banks, in the quest to uh, better compete with their low-cost um, online-only competitors like your Bofis, will essentially... Um, force everyone to go fully digital or pay ruinous fees on things like checking accounts and that people, price sensitive as they are, will increasingly head in that direction. Now, I do think there will still be some bank branches, not a ton, um, and I think they'll be designed basically to facilitate the the kind of high-touch stuff, you know, meetings between a bank-employed wealth advisor and high-net-worth clients, that sort of thing. So think of it like the um, Capital One coffee shop model, except taken to an extreme, um, whereas, you know, if you Google Capital One coffee shop, and you'll get an idea of sort of what they're starting to do. It's really cool, really interesting. I think that's kind of where banks will ultimately go. I do not think that a lot of the kind of daily, you know, teller-based stuff that a lot of people are still using banks for today will be at all in widespread use in 25 years. And and, and Matt, our difference is really one of scale, not necessarily of direction. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with the trend. I just kind of think it's going to happen a little slower than you do. Sure. Um, I believe that as long as the baby boomer generation is alive at all, first of all, bank, branch banking won't go away. Um, this is the same reason that, you know, personal check writing at the grocery store hasn't gone away. There are some people who just really don't want to switch to a new technology. Um, and there are a lot of kind of, as you said, high touch things that are not just, you know, the older Americans. Like, for example, I have a safe deposit box at a bank, so I have to go to that whenever I need to access the box. Um, I think the number is going to be closer to, say, 75, 80% than 99. Yeah, fair enough. And hey, this is the fun thing about predicting things uh, 25 years out. Who knows? Um, let's also, but like, so, so let's also talk about these mass market things because, um, you know, I, I, I think it is very, very clear that fees for mass market uh, um, services, things like checking accounts, savings accounts, money transfers, like bank wires, index funds, ETFs, et cetera, will collectively be very close to zero. And so this is one of those things where they probably won't actually be at zero because, you know, there there is still some kind of underlying fee. But I, I, I believe that banks will be finding other ways to monetize those clients. So you hear about the cross-selling, for example, that a Wells Fargo um, has historically done with as we all know, some some externalities, let's just say. Um, but you know, you could also see like freemium models, things that are ad supported, and and things like that. I mean, really, there are a lot of different ways that the internet is is solving the fee problem, and I do believe that that's going to ultimately come to banking as well. 
Absolutely. I, I think within 25 years, every bank, big bank, small bank, whatever, will have a free checking and savings product. It will be an absolute necessity to compete with the online banks, mm-hmm. especially as as we both agree, more and more banking will switch to online. Um, it, you just can't charge people $12 a month for a checking account when they can lock onto their computer and get one that's free. That's not a long-term sustainable business model. Right. But other things like you know, money transfers, will a wire transfer ever be $0? No, but it's not going to be $30 forever. <laughs> right. um, it's it's going to be, it might be a dollar. You know, that might be, maybe something like that is the floor. But it's never going to get to zero. But banks will offer the free checking and savings products in order to retain their customers to be able to charge them for things like that. Um, uh, index funds, ETFs will all gravitate towards zero. Um, index funds already are. I I, if if they want to compete with places like Schwab and Vanguard, ETFs are going to really have to lower their fees over the long run. Right. Like uh, Vanguard and Schwab's fees, I think some of them are down to 0.03% on some of their index funds, which is $3 for every 10000 you have invested. So it's it's going to gravitate in that direction. It won't actually get to zero, but pretty close. Very close, yeah. And, and relatedly, um, I think that robo-advisors will have about 90% worldwide market share in securities markets in 25 years. With self-taught active stock pickers, people like you and me, and the handful of incredibly wealthy people working with hedge fund types making up the balance. I So, so the, the broader world doesn't think things are heading there quite that quickly. Uh, My Private Banking um, recently released a report uh, in which they say that they think robo-advisors will make up 10% of total market share by 2025. Um, my personal viewpoint is that the initial uh, forays into this um, have basically been slow because people have had to get used to the idea um, and because they've been, you know... <laughs> They don't offer all the services yet. You know, they're still building out. But my belief is that as the robos improve and as people get increasingly used to and comfortable with the idea of a of a um, an algorithm sort of uh, handling different parts of their life, including their finances, I think it's going to explode. Um, now, you know, ninety percent maybe is a little bit aggressive. Maybe it's more like eighty percent. But but I truly do believe that robo advisors are going to just basically wipe up the vast, vast majority of market share in the next 25 years. Oh, definitely. And 90% may be aggressive, but it's definitely closer to 90 than 10. In, in my <laughs> right. opinion. Um, so that that's definitely a trend that's going to take place. There will always be people like me who want to own individual stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, I believe you're one of them as well. Oh, yes. Um, but that's not for everybody. You really need the time to research stocks, the knowledge to do it correctly, and you know the desire to do it. If you're going to buy individual stocks, and I'd say about 90% of the American population doesn't don't have those three things, so robo advisors, as long as as you said, fees keep gravitating towards zero, and these products keep getting more and more advanced, there's really going to be no reason for the average investor not to use them. Yeah, um, and and relatedly, sort of two points that I'm going to kind of put together into one. Um, I believe that peer-to-peer lending will represent at least 25% of total lending spend in 25 years. Now, I only say 25%, uh, which you know you might be thinking, what he's been throwing out these huge numbers. Why only 25%? Um, for me, like it's very clear that peer-to-peer lending has become a lot more widespread and a lot more feasible than it was previously. Um, 
I, and I, I do expect the peer-to-peer lenders uh, or a bank, perhaps, who hops in to sort of help solve for one of the current difficulties, which essentially is poor underwriting by some of the peer-to-peer facilitators right now, meaning that the investors who are putting the money in aren't making the kind of money that they'd hoped to. I believe those will ultimately be solved. Um, I, in fact, I see I can see robo-advisors helping you invest in small debt tranches for exposure, kind of on the risky side of the yield curve. Um, but I only say 25%. Because banks have legitimately trillions of dollars to lend, <laughs> and they will absolutely be looking for ways to deploy that capital effectively. So I would expect that they will be helping facilitate a lot of these peer-to-peer loans. Um, I believe they will be, in some cases, investing alongside. I think they will often um, invest in a loan and perhaps then sell it to peer-to-peer lenders for an arbitrage so they can do it all again, sort of like you see with agency-backed mortgages. And in fact, let me, let me double under my, underline that last point. Banks will absolutely, well, will probably, <laughs> retain a tele- technological advantage over normal folks. They just got a lot more money to throw at problems, and they will keep gobbling up fintech companies. Um, and so, in the short term, on a lot of things, they will make more money than normal folks because they will be able to run the trade and then arbitrage it to somebody else. But over the long term, I think they'll continue to fall prey to the same failings, um, which usually come down to greed or what uh, Greenspan would call um, irrational exuberance um, and um, and just basically human judgment errors. I think they're going to continue to fall to those um, as they have since time immemorial. Yeah, I, I think 25% is definitely a good figure there. I think within 25 years, Every bank, whether it's big, small, online, brick and mortar, whatever, will have some sort of lending platform that on its surface, at least, feels like lending club to the consumer or feels like Marcus by Goldman Sachs or one of those platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, so 25 percent to just peer to peer lenders, because it is an interesting investment product. It's a way to diversify your holdings, earn better returns than most bonds are, will pay. So it's definitely appealing to the investor. But as you said, the banking system just has trillions and trillions of dollars to lend. And over time, they're only going to get more and more efficient about how they use it and acquire fintech companies, as you mentioned. So 25 percent is definitely a good number. Um, I could see banks actually getting much, much more competitive with peer-to-peer lenders and even maybe taking a little market share back from them. Mm -hmm. But the disruption has been made. Peer-to-peer lending is, at least from a customer's point of view, how it simplifies the process is here to stay. Yes. And and relatedly, just to bring a little bit of history back into this discussion as we're thinking about the future, um, it looks like there will be at least there will probably be at least two full credit cycles during the next 25 years, and at least one financials-induced recession, possibly two, and two to three full recessions. For context, we had three across the last 30 years. Because I do not believe that banks have fully learned the lessons of this last recession. At least one of those recessions will probably be caused by banks repackaging something into something else, reselling it to consumers or other banks, over-trusting the algorithms that they did not adequately vet, and blowing up the financial system, or at least getting close. Um, to, to, to summarize <laughs> this, this sort of whole idea and sort of this whole episode, um, the financial system today has several problems, as it always has. Um, one of them, fees, is solved, we think, long-term, by the invisible hand of private markets because of technology. But the others, irrational exuberance, shoddy vetting work around algorithms, the goal of making a buck today no matter the cost next year, will persist because, because they're human 
issues. And I, I believe that no amount of fancy technology can ever really truly solve those problems because the algorithms ultimately will look like us to some extent. Um, and any, any solution that we try to create, somebody will do something new and that may ultimately end up undermining the entire enterprise. And so I do not think we're going to enter into a time where we perfectly know who's going to default or when we perfectly can predict the next credit uh, crisis or when we can perfectly prevent the next recession because that's just not something humanity can do. But what we can do, hopefully, is make things a little bit better, a little bit cheaper, and a little bit more transparent and a lot more democratized. And that, I think, is a future we can all be excited about. Well, folks... That's it for this week's financial show. Questions? Comments? You can always reach us at industryfocus@fool.com. As always, people in the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. <laughs>